The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Where Were You in 92 is a production of iHeartRadio. A special note, this episode contains descriptions of violence. I think that the aesthetic of hip-hop changed right under our feet as we were transitioning from album one to album two. Welcome to Where Are You in 92, a podcast in which I, your host, Jason Lanfier, look back at the major hits, one-hit wonders, shocking news stories, and irresistible scandals that shaped what might be the wildest, most eclectic, most controversial 12 months of music ever. This week, a feel-good alternative to gangster rap, Arrested Development burst out of Atlanta bearing messages of peace, love, and unity. After their acclaimed, genre-bending 1992 debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of, topped critics' polls and won them a Grammy for Best New Artist, they were poised to become the next big thing in hip-hop. But if their success was enormous and immediate, it was also fleeting. They had all but disappeared three years later as a new strain of hip-hop, G-Funk, became the defining story of the genre. In this episode, we examine how Arrested Development's sound and values were a refreshing musical change of pace, but how they quickly fell out of step with the trends that would dominate hip-hop for the rest of the decade. Plus, Frontman Speech joins us to discuss their 1992 breakout single, Tennessee, the deeply personal real-life events that inspired it, and why the group was more influential than many listeners realize. It's strange to think of a time when legit hip-hop artists weren't some of the biggest names in the country. A time before Drake, Kanye West, Future, Travis Scott, Cardi B, and Nicki Minaj. A time before Eminem, T.I., Lil Wayne, Nelly, Ludacris, and 50 Cent. A time before Outkast, Jay-Z, Puff Daddy, Tupac, and the Notorious B.I.G. A time before Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. All of those artists have had number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100. We can't really say they crossed over into the mainstream, because when they climbed to the top of the charts, hip-hop was the mainstream. Now hip-hop is essentially pop. But once upon a time, specifically at the beginning of 1992, it was rare for a hip-hop act to dominate Top 40 Radio and have a gold record. The biggest hip-hop hits of 1992, in this case I mean the hip-hop songs with the strongest showings on the Hot 100, did not represent the prevailing sounds of hip-hop at that time. They could never be categorized as gangster rap, like Ice-T and Ice Cube, or hardcore hip-hop, like Public Enemy, or East Coast hip-hop, like A Tribe Called Quest, or rap rock, like Beastie Boys, or jazz rap, like De La Soul. Instead, these chart-conquering tracks came with what you could call a quirky selling point, a gimmick. Let's look at a few of them. 
The second biggest single of 1992 was actually a hip-hop song. Sir Mix-a-Lot's spunky Miami bass-influenced number one hit, Baby Got Back, was a bouncy ode to plentiful booties that unfolded like one big fat joke. Though, as we covered in episode one of this show, Mix's messaging was actually pretty damn sincere. The track was so undeniable that it topped the Billboard Hot 100 for five consecutive weeks. The number three single of 1992 was also a hip-hop song. At the time, Criss Cross's Jump was the fastest-selling single in 15 years, and it stayed at the top of the Hot 100 for eight consecutive weeks. Criss Cross were the dinky, dimple-faced duo of Chris MacDaddy Kelly and Chris Daddy Mac Smith, who were only 12 and 13 years old when they recorded Jump. Their shtick? They wore their clothes cartoonishly baggy and backwards. No irony here. Also massively popular that year, House of Pain's Jump Around, which reached number three on the Hot 100, and snaring listeners with its rollicking mix of rap, rock, dancehall, and club music. Folks clearly wanted to jump in 1982. Their shtick? They were a couple of proud white dudes who'd banded together to put out music and imagery that celebrated their Irish heritage. No irony here either. And let's not forget, though many of you would like to, Hammer, formerly MC Hammer. He had a couple of hits too. Too Legit to Quit arrived with an insanely expensive 15-minute music video featuring cameos from numerous athletes and the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and a storyline in which James Brown sends Hammer to go take Michael Jackson's glove. The uncut version also included appearances from the likes of Tony Danza and Millie Vanilli. Hammer's other big hit in 1992 was Adam's Groove, the theme song to the 1991 movie The Adams Family. In the video for that song, Hammer could be seen dancing all over the Adams Family Mansion and Backyard Cemetery. Sadly, no irony in sight here either. So yeah, you get the point. The 1992 pop charts boasted a wild, goofy, messy, all-over-the-map mix of hip-hop. And most hip-hop heads would say I'm using that term hip-hop real loosely. And then there was Arrested Development, who came out of nowhere and suddenly were everywhere. Founded by College Pals speech and headliner, the Atlanta, Georgia outfit would have a bigger year than any other hip-hop act. In fact, they would have a bigger year than virtually any other group in 1992, period. The best moments off their massive debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life Of, struck the balance between thoughtful and thrilling. They brought something to hip-hop that was practically unheard of in the genre at the time. Spirituality. Spirituality and another oddity in hip-hop at that point. Hopefulness. Positivity. Their singles were accessible and inspired with seductive hooks and memorable lyrics. They were instant hits. So then, why have Arrested Development become such a footnote in hip-hop history? The answer, as you may have guessed, is complicated. It is the result of too much infighting too much fame, too fast, and, perhaps more than anything, a watershed moment at the tail end of 1992 that would change hip-hop forever. Speech was born Todd Thomas and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His parents were civil rights advocates and very active in the community, rallying together Black-owned businesses and supporting the Black empowerment movement. They instilled similar values in their children. Speech recalls them frequently engaging him and his brother in conversations around social issues over the breakfast table. His father owned a nightclub called the Fox Trap, where Speech started DJing at the age of 13, learning from the locals who played there. In 1984, he formed his first rap group, Attack, the first rap group out of Milwaukee. As DJ Peach, he'd spin records in rhyme. Attack gained a local following and were active for two years, but Speech left Milwaukee for Atlanta in 1987, partly to avoid getting mixed up in the gang violence plaguing his city. There he'd study at the Art Institute of Atlanta. His first week at the Institute, he put up a flyer in the cafeteria saying he was a rapper searching for a DJ. He spotted another student looking at it, and they struck up a conversation. That student was Timothy Barnwell, but he would adopt the stage name Headliner. They became fast friends and began making music after class in Speech's apartment and getting gigs around the city. They changed their name and style a couple of times, 
first calling themselves DLR, Disciples of the Lyrical Rebellion, and opting for a gangsta light vibe, then going by secret society and emulating public enemy. They finally landed on the moniker Arrested Development. While they were fans of gangsta rap, Speech and Headliner wanted to take their music in a different direction. As Speech said in a 2020 interview with Vlad TV, quote, I felt like just the gangster rap thing wasn't showing who we really were. So I felt like Arrested Development's music was a great chance to put more flesh on the bones of who Black people are, what our issues are, things that we're concerned about. They thought Black culture had stalled, hence the group's name Arrested Development, and they wanted to push the conversation forward. They specifically wanted to underscore what it was like to be Black in the South. As Speech told Select Magazine when the band started to take off in 1992, quote, there's more Black people in the South than in the North, and this is the place where Black people first arrived in America. I think the South is now the place of preference for Black people. There's a very African influence here. Headliner, who'd grown up in Savannah, considered the political hip-hop coming out of New York to be an offshoot of activist Malcolm X's Black militancy, while he and Speech were inspired by the work of Southern civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. Their core tenets were peace, community, unity. They aimed to infuse their music with an Afrocentricity that was uncommon in rap at the time. In their minds, their authenticity, spirituality, and originality would distinguish them from other acts in hip-hop, a genre that was edging closer to the mainstream. Before signing their record deal, Arrested Development was a rotating collective of around 20 members. At live shows, Speech and Headliner would invite their creative peers on stage, incorporating cowbell players, African dance, and artists painting into their performances. When they signed the record deal, they had to scale back and settled on six chief members. Speech, Headliner, Baba Oje, Erli Tari, Moncho Ishii, and Raza Dong, who started as a dancer before becoming the group's drummer and graphic artist. He designed his official logo. When he wasn't working as a barber at his day job, Headliner was the crew's crate digger, rummaging through old records and selecting beats and vocals for Arrested Development to sample. Some 20 samples would eventually be cleared for their first album. Snippets of songs from the likes of Minnie Ripperton, Quincy Jones, Rick James, John Lee Hooker, and Sly and the Family Stone. Speech would build on them, crafting compositions that fused funk, soul, folk, jazz, and the blues. Some journalists called their style alternative rap, but Speech was never a fan of the term, finding it reductive. Through Headliner's girlfriend, Speech and Headliner connected with Michael Malden, father of rapper-producer Jermaine Dupri, who incidentally formed Crisscross. Malden became Arrested Development's manager, but finding them a record deal proved challenging. They were turned down left and right because labels didn't know what to do with them. Speech had promised his mother that if he wasn't able to snag a record deal, he'd move back to Milwaukee and return to college. He'd done just that when the label Chrysalis decided to sign them. As he tells it, it had seen how popular progressive rappers De La Soul had become after the release of their critically lauded 1989 debut album, Three Feet High and Rising, and wanted to capitalize on its success. Says Speech. At that point, we were first just offering a single deal. We had a whole album, like, pretty much prepared. But the single deal was Mr. Wendell, Side A, and uh, back then we had A and B side. Side B was natural. Mr. Wendell offered a portrait of its titular character, a homeless man. It was inspired by Speech's own interaction with men living on the streets of Atlanta near the studio where he and Headliner recorded music. The track, which sampled drums from Sly and the Family Stone's Sing a Simple Song, was bubbly and buoyant with major pop crossover potential. And it captured the Arrested Development ethos perfectly. It was social consciousness in a pretty package, a slice of colorful, thought-provoking storytelling anchored by an infectious, toe-tapping groove. Mr. Wendell wasn't just a bum. The song's narrator realizes he has wisdom to share, that because he is unmarred by materialism, he may actually be more enlightened than those who choose to discount him. But life had other plans. Mr. Wendell would not be released as Arrested Development's first single. That honor would instead go to Tennessee, a late addition to the repertoire that wowed the label, catapulted the group's career, and became their signature song. 
Uh, Tennessee was literally the last song we recorded wow. for the album. They ended up signing our album deal, I think, because we had recorded and shot a video for Tennessee, and I think they were sold on us. Tennessee stemmed from personal tragedy. It would become a bomb for speech's grief. My grandmother, who I spent all my summers with in Tennessee, she passed away of a heart attack unexpectedly. And so we were all devastated. I was extremely devastated because she spent, I spent a ton of time with this grandmother and she really was probably the biggest force outside of my mom and dad to shape who I am as a person. Speech and his family traveled to Tennessee for her service. There, he reunited with his brother, who'd also gone off to college. He was at the funeral, and we all left there with a sense of, you know, renewal and just striving to do our lives, you know, better in her name. And that same week, my brother died of an asthma attack. He was 29, and it just wrecked my life. I mean, everything was everything was tentative. There was no, it was, it was very hard for me to collect hope. Tennessee had been the last place Speech had seen his grandmother before she passed. And now it was the last place he had seen his brother. To mitigate the pain, he headed to the studio and began to write. The track, Tennessee, is Speech's prayer to a greater power, but it is also the sound of him processing the deaths of his loved ones and the meaning of his life, his race, his ancestry, his community. Its chorus is simple yet profound, hooky yet heartbreaking. Take me to another place. Take me to another land. Make me forget all that hurts me. Let me understand your plan. While the song concludes without resolution, you can hear the catharsis it brought speech. But I told the label I really insisted on them releasing this record. I told them what happened with my family. And they loved it. They, I really was in a mood where if they didn't let me release this record first, I didn't want to release anything. To me, nothing else mattered. Releasing the single would feel like a form of closure for speech. But he also believed in the music itself. He knew Tennessee was special. From an ancestral standpoint, it was a gift from my grandmother and my brother to me. But to me, it was a gift to, to hip-hop. It was a gift to, you know, the world of music, too, I, I feel, because it was doing some unique things, and it was bringing some unique things to the table. The label agreed, giving Arrested Development $19,000 to make a video. <laughs> Compare that to Guns N' Roses' $1.5 million budget for the November Rain video. They filmed it not in Tennessee, but in rural Georgia at an old, dilapidated house speech discovered that reminded him of his grandmother's house. Featuring the band's friends and locals who asked if they could be part of it, it included shots of slave shackles. They actually were in the house, a sad remnant of its dark past. Other shots included artwork depicting black men being lynched. It's easy to see why the black and white video convinced the band's label to give them a full album deal. It is by turns celebratory, as the group spins records and dances on the house's porch and around the property, and powerful with its nods to the South's complex, haunting history. Speech recalls being around 20 years old and going to a record store in Atlanta soon after Tennessee was released as a single to see how it was selling. After the guy there informed him that the only people buying it were 40 plus, he thought AD were doomed. But then MTV selected the video for Buzzbin, a segment in which VJs gave cool up-and-coming artists their stamp of approval, leading the network to put their latest video on heavy rotation. Suddenly, Tennessee blew up. The track topped Billboard's hot R&B hip-hop songs chart and hot rap songs chart and peaked at number six on the Hot 100, eventually going gold. It was also a hit among critics. A review in the Los Angeles Times read, quote, Some of Pop's best moments come from groups that seem to arrive from nowhere with a confidence and mature vision. And that's the case here. Another claimed the song, quote, may go down in the history books as the first major sad rap hit. Not bitter, not raging or recriminatory, just flat out soul and heaven searchingly heartsick. Tennessee would also be chosen as one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Its place in the 90s pop pantheon is well-deserved. Tennessee has all the ingredients of a sonic game-changer. Slick record scratching, a juicy shuffling beat lifted from James Brown's Funky Drummer, a go-to sample at the time, a sticky sing-along chorus, 
Speech's honeyed melodic flow, a rarity in hip-hop, which often favored harder, more aggressive rhyming. Rafter-shaking, gospel-esque belting from guest vocalist Dion Ferris. Vivid lyrics that wrestle with the cruelties of life and death, the past and the present, and illuminate the beauty and calamity of what it means to be Black in the South. I mean, these lines alone. Then, out of nowhere, you tell me to break. Out of the country and into more country. Past Dyersburg into Ripley, where the ghost of childhood haunts me. Walk the roads my forefathers walked. Climbed the trees my forefathers hung from. The beloved track also contains a sterling sample of Prince's 1998 single, Alphabet Street. One word, Tennessee, heard most prominently at the beginning of the song, and then buried in the mix a little later. But the purple one took notice. At that time, it was a Wild Wild West sampling-wise, so we didn't really understand exactly the laws. When the record got to, like, number six, I think, on the pop charts, and it went down to seven, we got a call from Prince's office. and Because it was just one word. I mean, it wasn't even a melody. It wasn't... It was just the word Tennessee. And so... um we got a call and he said he wanted $100,000 for the sample. And at that time, as a 23-year-old guy, first album ever, the very fact that he asked for 100000 was just mind-blowing to me. Now, looking back, Speech is grateful that was all Prince wanted. He could have took it off the shelves. He could have, um, you know, like a cease and desist order. And he could have asked for half the song rights or publishing. You know, you could do pretty much anything because the leverage was very much on his side. Don't worry, there was no bad blood. In fact, Speech eventually even met Prince when he was invited to one of his birthday bashes. Arrested Development released their debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of, in March of 1992, in conjunction with Tennessee. The title referred to how long it took them to get a record contract. The wait was worth it. The record got raves. Upon its release, Entertainment Weekly said the group was, quote, perhaps rap's most self-reflective act. The Chicago Tribune called them, quote, a major new voice in hip-hop and praised their lack of, quote, macho boasting and gangster posing. At the end of that year, the Village Voices Paz and Jop Critics Poll declared it the best album of 1992. Rolling Stone crowned Arrested Development Band of the Year. After one of the group's shows, director Spike Lee came backstage to introduce himself. They would go on to contribute a song, Revolution, to the soundtrack of his 1992 Malcolm X biopic, Malcolm X. A bit ironic, given that they more closely associated themselves with Martin Luther King. Three years, five months, and two days in the life of would yield two more top ten hits. The reggae-tinged feel-good cut, People Every Day, boasted a superb interpolation of Sly and the Family Stone's everyday people, and chronicled a street confrontation between a man and a rowdy gang who taunt him and grope his girlfriend. The metamorphosis mix of it peaked at number eight on the Hot 100, and number two in the UK. Speech wrote it to illustrate the contrast between his perception of Black culture and pride and that of most Black men in his neighborhood back home. As he explained to Song Facts, they understood they were Black, but for them, Black was jerry curls. It was pimping. I'd come to understand that Black culture had a lot more to do with Africa, and it was different hairstyles we could express ourselves with, like dreadlocks and braids. So I would dress like that, and a lot of the people around me in Milwaukee would sort of mock it. And so the song was really just talking about this tension between one concept of culture and another concept of culture. At the end of 1992, AD would release its third single, Mr. Wendell, which, like Tennessee, would peak at number six on the Hot 100. Like Tennessee, both People Every Day and Mr. Wendell were certified gold. The band would donate half the proceeds of Mr. Wendell to the National Coalition for the Homeless in the United States. At the 1993 Grammys, Arrested Development would take home the coveted award for Best New Artist, becoming the first hip-hop act to earn the prize. Tennessee would win for Best Rap Performance by a Duo or a Group. At the 1992 VMAs, Tennessee would snag Best Rap Video, an award the group would win again in 1993 for People Every Day. That same year, MTV would release Unplugged, an album of their live performance at New York's Ed Sullivan Theater making A.D. the first rap act to get an unplugged record. They were Critical Darlings, Recording Academy Darlings, MTV Darlings, and Fan Darlings. Arrested Development ticked all the boxes. They could not have had a more auspicious start to their career. Or, some would say, a more abrupt ending. (music) 
1994 sophomore album, Singala Maduni, sold poorly, not even cracking the top 50. None of its singles reached the top 40. By 1995, Arrested Development had split up. Up next, after the break, we explore what led to the group's unraveling, including a lawsuit, and why Arrested Development are often overlooked or even dismissed in the annals of hip-hop. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Nineteen ninety-two was a banner year for Arrested Development. Their debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of, would go four times platinum and yield three hit singles all of which were certified gold. Rolling Stone named them Band of the Year, and on the strength of their widely popular releases, they would win a 1993 Grammy for Best New Artist. They would tour the globe, introducing some international audiences to hip-hop. But their mainstream success was short-lived. Their 1994 follow-up album, Singala Maduni, flopped. None of its singles cracked the top 40. In fact, the band hasn't had a top 40 single since Mr. Wendell hit number six in 1993. Rarely does an act that became so popular and beloved fizzle so quickly. So what happened? Well, for one, AD's second album just didn't offer the radio-friendly bangers its predecessor did. Speech says it was too rushed. The group was still touring and promoting the first LP while he was scrambling to put together their next. He was wearing a lot of hats. So like, similar to kids now who are in their little home studios making beats, I was that guy, but I was also the rhymer. And so I was the lead vocalist, I was the DJ to some extent, and I made the beats. So, you know, like I sometimes envied people like uh, N.W.A. who, you know, Dr. Dre was sort of the producer. And then, you know, Ice Cube was mainly the main lyricist. And then there was other members that did lyrics or, or a public enemy who had you know, Chuck D and Flav and all that, but he had the Bomb Squad who was the producers and it was a, a group of guys, you know, having the follow-up and having it just on these shoulders felt unbearable. And that, that felt really, really daunting, you know? Another major reason the group faded from the spotlight? 
In the roughly two years between Arrested Development's first and second albums, hip-hop culture completely shifted. On December 15, 1992, NWA member Dr. Dre released his debut solo album, The Chronic, featuring the lithe vocals of Snoop Doggy Dogg, and turned the genre upside down. Sample and breakbeat-heavy party rap and political rap gave way to G-Funk, a new strain of hip-hop that folded in smooth, parliament-funkadelic snippets sparingly, pairing them with airy, soulful vocals and instrumentation. The Chronic was critically hailed and went multi-platinum. Today, it is regarded as one of the most important albums of the 1990s and one of the most important hip-hop albums of all time. Andy Herman is a Los Angeles-based music journalist, podcast producer, and longtime fan of Arrested Development's first album. But he considers The Chronic's impact on the band and on rap music as a whole undeniable. I think hip-hop just underwent this massive sea change with the arrival of Dr. Dre as a solo artist, with the arrival of Snoop Dogg, with... You know, gangster rap was not a new thing in 92, 93, but it it sort of became the dominant sound in hip hop after that. Arrested Development sound felt fresh when they descended on the scene in 1992, as socially conscious, less antagonistic hip hop acts were making waves. But that sound and aesthetic swiftly fell out of fashion after The Chronic introduced a novel take on gangster rap and flaunted tougher, flashier, more materialistic imagery. Three years, five months, and two days, days had passed. I mean, as as great as that album is, it was a little bit of a fluke and a little bit of just just arriving at the right moment. I think just the culture, for whatever reason, just kind of was ready. You know, I think bands like PM Dawn and De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest had kind of primed the pump for this more kind of left-field style of hip-hop. And Tennessee was such a powerful single that it just it kind of just kicked open the door for this new group to just have some commercial success with that sound and that vibe. But I think in a weird way after that, you know, like mainstream rap went in this much more kind of hard direction and conscious rap went in this much more kind of indie minded almost sort of commercially averse direction. And then where does that leave a group like Arrested Development? Speech could recognize that the tides were turning, but lacking time and resources, all while still trying to maintain the 80 ethos, he and the band weren't able to move with them. So we got, you know, we tried to do our best to try to ride that fence of being who we are, but still making sure we can sort of grab hold to this new movement of things. I think it was too little too late as far as trying to do that. Navigating hip-hop's new metamorphosis was challenging enough, but Arrested Development were also struggling as a group. We were internally going through a lot, you know, because of the success of the group and the monies that were being made, and especially by me being the producer and writer and those that know about the music industry, you know, writers and producers make certain monies that the artists that didn't write or produce don't make. So I'm making more money than other people in the group. And they we don't know how this all works, but they know that there's more money and there's jealousy and anger. And there's a lot going on at that time. Headliner, Arrested Development's turntablist and co-founder was especially frustrated. He didn't think he was getting enough credit for his contributions. Speech has said Headliner demanded more ownership of the band in 1992 and refused to tour unless profits were divided between them 50-50. But Headliner has claimed they were 50-50 partners from the beginning and that Speech threatened to end the group if he couldn't increase his ownership. As Headliner told the Atlanta publication Creative Loafing in 2016, quote, the threat was everybody was going to be put out of the band and there was going to be no more original members. So I sacrificed myself to give everyone a shot. To which Speech responded, quote, I wouldn't consider him a co-founder. Headliner was instrumental to AD because he was the first person that agreed to be in the band and he believed in my vision. Headliner sued speech. They settled on a 60-40 split. The tension created a rift in the group. Money became a huge issue. 
its members were suddenly looking for their piece of the pie and grew distrustful of one another. Their sense of community, their aversion to materialism and greed, AD's key principles, began to deteriorate. Everyone in the group had their own sort of clique of business people and a lot of times family members that were their managers now. And, you know, don't talk to this group member, talk to the manager first. And, you know, and everyone's trying to strike deals and everyone's trying to figure out ways to make uh, more money, but in ways that had little to do with the creativity and the actual point of the music. One night backstage at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, contributing vocalist Dion Ferris lost it and reportedly threw a chair at speech. She quit right before they were set to perform. She'd later score a big solo hit, I Know, in 1985. In 1995, Headliner was ready to move on too. We did a show in Japan, and um, or a number of shows in Japan. Great run. But I remember Headliner saying at that run that he's like, this is my last. He was telling a fan, actually. He was like, this is my last show. And he didn't tell me at the time, but we weren't on best terms at that time. So um, I overheard it and I was like, oh, okay. That would mark the end of the 1992 iteration of Arrested Development. Speech would pursue a solo career and achieve great success in Japan. When the group returned in 2000, Speech was leading it, but the lineup had changed. Original member Baba Oje, AD's elder and spiritual guru, would die in 2018. Arrested Development's legacy is complicated. For two years in the early 90s, they were everywhere. But you won't find many modern hip-hop critics citing them as highly influential in the genre. You won't find them on all the best hip-hop albums or best of the 90s lists. Even though they came out of Atlanta and racked up the accolades and units in 1982 and 93, as I say this, they don't even have a mention on the Southern Hip Hop Wikipedia page. Some have dismissed them as super earnest, corny hippies or hip hop for suburban white kids. I would agree that not all of their spiritual, naturey, preachy stuff holds up today. It can sometimes feel a bit suffocating, simplistic, and idealistic. I would also agree that their music took an anti-gangsta and for some, therefore, an anti-hip-hop stance. Just look at the song People Every Day. I would also argue that that was part of their appeal for suburban white kids. Their music certainly appealed to this suburban white kid who growing up found a lot of hip-hop too aggressive. 80s, three years, five months, and two days in the life of was one of the first hip-hop albums I owned. I'd fall for many more as I got older, but it was a gateway. Andy Herman had a similar experience with the album. He wasn't initially a hip-hop fan, but in his teens, AD hooked him. I think that's, that was maybe kind of both their strength and their weakness in a way, I think, was that they, they played to an audience outside of uh, that, that sort of core hip-hop audience. And, you know, maybe that's why they haven't gotten their due in hip-hop history, because their appeal was so often outside of the hip hop mainstream that I think like a lot of hip hop heads maybe sort of look at them with a little bit of suspicion, but I think they, they deserve a lot of credit for opening the genre up to a lot of people who, who wouldn't have found an entry point otherwise. If arrested development are sometimes left out of the conversation surrounding Southern hip hop speech asserts that the band did break ground. In his mind, their success served as a template and opened doors for future Southern hip-hop acts. Without Arrested Development, in my opinion, there's no Outkast, there's no um, Goody Mob, there's no, in my opinion, er Erica Badu, there's no Roots. I'm not suggesting that they got their ideas from us. I think they got their road paved by what we paved earlier. So it gave them an opportunity to have a voice. And I, don't, I remember literally um, my label playing me the D'Angelo Brown Sugar album before it came out, wondering if they should sign it. You know, I remember the label showing me the root stuff, wondering if they should sign it. Um, you know, because with us being as successful as we were and yet rooted as we were, these groups, they felt that there was really money to be made in that in that arena. Up 
Up next, after the break, Arrested Development co-founder and frontman Speech joins us to talk more about their massive early 90s success, the reasons for their undoing, and why he thinks the group deserves a spot in the hip-hop history books. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Welcome back to Where Were You in 92? We've been discussing Arrested Development's rapid rise in 1992 and swift unraveling in the years that followed. Now it's time to hear from the group's co-founder and frontman, songwriter, rapper, and producer, Todd Thomas, a.k.a. Speech. So Speech, uh, I'm just wondering where you were physically and mentally in 1992. 1992 was a phenomenal year in many ways. I mean, I was a hopeful artist, poor, broke, trying to um, make history, you know, trying to breakthrough in the hip hop scene, which at that time, the South wasn't really represented. So it was East and West Coast and um, Ghetto Boys had a lot of success. Luke way down in Miami, which was more of a coastal city as opposed to what I'm considering South right now. So um, they had success. And so um, the South really hadn't made a name just yet. And so I was really hoping to break through. And um, this is pre-LaFace, which was a very big influence in Atlanta. And so I was connecting with as many people as possible. We got a record deal. Um, it was with a record label that took a chance on us, really, because Chrysalis at the time, which is the label we signed with, they, they didn't have any hip-hop artists, um, per se, and especially any coming out of the South. So um, they did have Gangstar on a subsidiary label of theirs, and they were one of my favorites. So, um, yeah, I was trying to break through and, and hoping for the best and, and striving to make our presence undeniable in the music scene. There, was a, there really just wasn't, a, a Southern hip hop wasn't really a, a thing at that point. It was very much East Coast, West Coast. What do you think you and the rest of the, the, the rest of the band brought to the table 
that intrigued Chrysalis to sign you? I think what we brought to the table is a lot. I think we brought um, melodic, melodic rhyming to the table of hip hop. I think we brought a soulful energy and like soulful um, solo vocals to hip hop music. And we brought another level of spirituality to the lyrics of hip hop. We brought, um, I think, a wider scope of Afrocentricity to hip hop. I think we brought um, men and women being in the same group, um, doing hip hop music, which was very rare. To my knowledge, literally the only other rap group that ever did it prior to us was Funky Four Plus One, which had done it back in the early 80s, uh, late 70s. And we were a live band, which the only hip hop act that I knew that did that was Stet. Uh, Roots weren't out yet. Stetsasonic was the first to do it. We were second. We had an elder in the group. So we brought this whole sort of communal community energy to, to hip hop where it wasn't this uh, generation gap anymore. And um, so I think among other things, that's what we brought. Now that's not why Chrysalis signed us. And that's why I separated the answer. Chrysalis just wanted to capitalize on the popularity of what was happening with De La Soul. Um, their Three Feet High and Rising album was really a pop success and it had a lot of crossover appeal with songs like Me, Myself and I, but also, you know, I Know and, and, and um, you know, other stuff. So basically, I think they wanted to try to get on that bandwagon in a sense, but we had our own energy. And um, while we were definitely influenced by Native Tongues and by Jungle Brothers and De La and Tribe, we had our own thing that we brought to the table as well. Three years, five months, and two days in the life of was a massive success. How did you react to that? Here you were thinking you were, you know, you waited three years to get this contract. And then you were going to go with another single. And suddenly you're one of the biggest bands in the world. It was unbelievable. And it was surreal. I mean, you got to put yourself in my head at the time. This is our first record. It's our first time dealing with a record label. It's our first time making money. It's our first time touring the nation. And I mean, I loved it, but it was very fast paced. Talk about learning a lot at a fast pace. I mean, it was just learning everything from how does this industry work? And, you know, I'm still learning and I'm 30 years in <laughs> and learning how to tour and, you know, how to get along with a band, how to keep the band together, how to, you know, navigate interviews. I mean, there's so many things that you're learning all for the first time. You followed up the record with Zingala Maduni um, in 94, a yeah. lot, lot of high expectations and high hopes. And, um, and you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't sell as well and it didn't really yield, um, you know, many hits. Why do you think that the follow-up didn't sell as well? I have a few thoughts. I mean, first of all, I don't think we should have released it when we did. We released it too early. I mean, we released it about a, a year after, you know, well, I mean, our first one was in 92 and in 94 we released, but we were on tour like super heavy and doing a lot of promo for that year. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to create it. That's number one. Number two, I think the industry had sort of, hip hop in particular, the the culture changed. You know, hip hop at that time was transitioning into a Wu-Tang era, um, a bad boy era soon after, a Nas era. And it was more gritty back to New York, Tim's on the ground, you know, a little bit of the hustle thing going on in the streets. That that was the, the energy that was being brought out in the New York scene. And, you know, I think that it just the, the aesthetic of hip hop changed right under our sort of under our feet as we were transitioning from album one to album two. Um, so, and then I also think, to be honest, consciousness in hip hop in general started to become uh, marginalized from the industry. The industry was pushing back groups like Public Enemy and wasn't really promoting their music as well. Arrested Development, uh, Brand Nubians, X-Clan, uh, Paris. I mean, all of these acts were sort of being relegated to the side and what was sort of taking its place was this more mogul oriented business oriented if you remember the imagery back then either you were on the streets with the tims 
or you were in a private jet or a yacht on the on the ocean and you had the bikini women and everyone's, you know, a mogul in a in an enterprising business person type of thing. And so there was just a total shift of, you know, emphasis of what hip hop was sort of doing at the time. And that just seems so antithetical to what Arrested Development is doing. Exactly. It was all about, I mean, the materialism and capitalism was, that's just the antithesis of what you stood for. Literally, you're right. One with nature, spirituality, community, family, friendship, close ties, um, the, the, the pure. Yeah, you had to really think about the core value, like the ethos of Arrested Development. And that was being put in question yeah. suddenly with, yeah. with the fame and the money. And, the- and, and you know, we, we touched on this earlier, you know, like I said, there's, there's, you know, bands come about in different ways. You know, not every band comes about the same way. So for us, I'm sort of the mad scientist guy in the room writing music. The rest of the group members were conceptual more so than they were like a band member. So when we came to live shows, they were way more involved because, you know, like Roz, one of our members played drums. Well, the drums weren't on the record. They weren't recorded on the record at all. But in live shows, he was playing them. And then, you know, so on and so forth. So that kind of thing made the group, you know, fascinating conceptually. But, you know, for the real like part of it who's making the songs it's just a lot of times just me so it was it was really tough to be able to navigate that that whole reality now that we're huge because yeah it does reflect that oh wow well Roz who plays drums who actually got in a band about a month before we got a deal wasn't on any of the records per se but of course he wants to make a lot of money you know, this is his chance. This is his shot. But there's no avenues for him to really make that money because he didn't write the song. He didn't produce it. He wasn't on the record. So it's a tough thing to sort of navigate because like, well, how do we get everybody happy and yet keep moving on with what the successful formula was in the first place that got us here in the first place? That was that was sort of the thing I was constantly trying to balance. Like, how do we do that? You know, so I, I, I think you you reunited in, so five years later, essentially, right in 2000. Yeah. Did you feel less pressure at that point? Did you feel even more pressure? Because eight years had passed and, and the landscape had changed. So by the time 2000 came, I didn't. we didn't even release that album, the Arrested Development new record, um, in the United States at all. We didn't even release it in the United States. We only focused on Japan. So in that sense, it was great. Japan was totally in lockstep with us the whole time. So... When Arrested Development stopped in 95, they were super on Arrested Development. Zingle Amadouli did very well in Japan. So that was great. Then I did a solo album in 96. They loved that. It went to number one for seven weeks. I did another solo album in 98. They loved that. Then I did a, a, a solo album in 2000 called Spiritual People. It was my biggest selling solo album to date. So when we dropped the Arrested Development album, it was anticipated heavily in that marketplace. And so we toured really heavy on that record. It was great for the group members because they didn't have that solo career sort of run that I just had. They were just coming back into the fold, but it felt really big. And the press was all around us and the fans were extremely excited. So it felt really good as long as we weren't in the States, as long as we were in Japan. (laughs) It was like everybody was on us. And Japan is a big place with a lot of great music fans. So it felt very, it felt very good. You know, it felt really good. So that's how we felt when we got back into it in 2000. And it's it's what allowed us to sustain, like even the new record for the F and love and, and don't fight your demons. But prior to that, it allows us, it allowed us to sustain our integrity or what we consider integrity. It allowed us to, to sustain the sound that we like, the aesthetic that we like, and it makes a really fun story for people that come to our shows now. They're getting to hear this catalog that they probably haven't heard, especially if they're in the States. They haven't heard a lot of it, but it feels like it feels like they never left in some ways. You take Japan out of the situation, we probably in every way just would have not been in existence. Yeah. Thank you, Japan. Yeah, thank you, thank Japan. You, Japan, because we are yeah. we are happy we are happy to still have you around. 
I think Tennessee was probably the first hip hop record that I was exposed to in my limited knowledge of it at the time where there was like something deeper being talked about. Like, I, I can't think of many other like top 10 hit singles that are, you know, literally like a guy like, you know, addressing God and sort of, you know, questioning his relationship to God and his faith. He sort of explores the past in, in that song in kind of a way that sort of mixes like nostalgia and trauma, I would say, in a way that I think is really powerful. The year is 2023. The latest incarnation of Arrested Development is thriving. They released an album for the effing love in 2021 and have been performing it. The response has been great. Fans of the band's old school stuff are really loving their new material. Young, new school audiences love discovering what was happening in the 90s. It's good vibes. But there is pain in Tennessee. Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man who lived in Memphis, sustained severe injuries after police beat him after a traffic stop. Three days after the incident, he died. Video footage released in late January shows the police kicking, punching, and pepper spraying him as he screamed. The five officers charged with Nichols' murder are also black. The story is complicated, maddening, and heartbreaking. How can such senseless violence exist in this world? What has caused it? How does Nichols' family, the Memphis community, the country move forward after such tragedy? My mind does what it often does when it's trying to process something so big, so sad and inconceivable. It turns to music. I think of Arrested Development's 30-year-old Tennessee, a song about processing the big, sad, and inconceivable. It does not offer answers, but it offers empathy, some sort of solace and connection, a step toward healing. I think of its songwriter's speech and wonder where his mind is. I learned that as the video of Nichols' beating is released, Speech has taken to Twitter to share his thoughts. He has written, Tyree Nichols is any one of us if the system doesn't fundamentally change. My heart goes out to his fam and loved ones. His next tweet comes a little less than an hour later. It is the chorus of Tennessee. What do you think the legacy of Arrested Development has been? Yeah, I don't, I don't know for sure. I mean, obviously that's for the people to decide. I would like it to be that you know, it's about revolution, about, you know, really striving to uplift, you know, all of us and take us all to, you know, another place. was a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show was researched, written, and hosted by me, Jason Lanfier, with editing and sound design by Michael Alder June. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? 
Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.